Welcome to the Left Hand Church Podcast. My name's Paula Stone-Williams, and I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We love having you join us here at Left Hand. We would love it if you would join us in a financial way as well. You can text any amount to 84321, and we'll receive it. You also can go to our website, lefthandchurch.org, and you can find out there how you can donate. Every time we begin a service, we begin with these words. Married, divorced, and single here. It's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here. We've all got to give a little here. Big and small here. There's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here. We all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here. There is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here. Everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. So I was 24 years old, so it was a couple years ago, and I was living in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I was in my second year of law school. The law school itself uh, looked like Hogwarts from Harry Potter. The, the old law school library sort of looks like the Grand Hall, but there aren't the floating candles it was gothic, it's beautiful, but kind of intimidating. But it was always gray, gray outside, and it was always cold. And on this particular day, I was sitting in a class called Enterprise Organizations. And right after the class started, the professor called my name and asked me to stand up and to come to the front of the classroom. Now, this part was not particularly unusual. This was part of the Socratic method which is a teaching technique that was originally utilized by the Greek philosopher Socrates, or Socrates, as Bill and Ted fans call him. And it's where students get randomly called on and asked to come up and stand in front of the class, and the professor then yells a bunch of questions at them, one right after the other after the other, based on the previous night's reading or the previous day's homework. On the Stanford University website, it notes that the, the purpose of the Socratic, the Socratic method is not to aim for discomfort, but rather <laughs> productive discomfort. The goal is to strike fear in the hearts of students that they cannot articulate clearly the values that guide their lives. Oh my, right? The Socratic method is fantastic. And while I was sort of used to it, at this point in my law school career, it was scary and intimidating every single day I'd walk into the classroom. I suspect Mary Jo can sympathize with that a little bit right now. So on this day, I got up, I walked slowly to the front of the classroom, but I honestly do not remember walking there. I just sort of arrived, I think. And the professor started yelling questions at me one after another, but I could not hear him. My heart was beating too fast. My ears were ringing too loudly, and I was sweating more and more and more, and I had this pit in my stomach, and the professor kept yelling questions at me one after the other, and I just stood there. Right? It was a full-blown panic attack. I was panicked, and I couldn't articulate any thoughts 
I could not articulate any words. And I was supposed to be talking and engaging in this Socratic back and forth with the law school professor, but I just looked straight ahead with a dumb look on my face. I started stuttering. I wasn't able to answer any of the questions. I think looking back in that moment, I was not able to, quote, clearly articulate the values and beliefs that guided my life. It seemed like I was up there for an hour. I bet it was only a minute or three, but it was a nightmare moment in my life, and truth be told, my heart right now is beating fast just thinking about it. So what happened next? Another student raised his hand, and in response to the professor yelling questions at me, he said, what I think John means to say is this. And he slowly started walking me through the answers to these questions. And I think that calmed me down just enough where I could start to sort of answer some of the questions that the professor was yelling at me. To this day, <laughs> I don't know what happened to that student who raised his hand and bailed me out like that. But I will say, you know, we were not friends, we weren't acquaintances. But 20 years later, if Nicholas Smith ever needs anything in the world, he knows all he has to do is call me. Today, I'm going to focus on the importance of words and speech and rhetoric by looking at Paul's speech on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. Paul uses his ability with words to talk about two things that we're going to focus on today. One, how do we look for God? How do we find God? How do we see God? And two, is it possible to find God? Is it possible to see God in pagan writings, ideas, artwork, poetry, and words? In other words, can things outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition point us to God? It's a really, really important question for us in a multicultural society in 2020, I think. Ready? So turn your Bible to Acts chapter 17. By way of background, Acts is a book that talks about the history of the very, very, very early church. And one of the early church's greatest evangelists is Paul. And Paul is often out preaching and spreading the word about Jesus with his friends. And Paul is a rebel rouser. He's always getting into trouble, always with local Jewish communities. And as we pick it up in Acts 17, Paul finds himself in Athens, having just escaped a mob in northern Greece, and now he's hanging out, waiting for his friends to join him in Athens. But Athens, at this time, was a big, big deal. While Rome was the imperial capital of the world, Athens was the intellectual capital of the world. It was the center of culture, the center of learning. It was where ideas came from. It's the home of poets, artists, philosophers, playwrights. The home of people like Aristotle, Homer, Pythagoras, Plato, and yes, even Socrates, right? Titans of the intellectual world. Athens was the home of democracy and the Acropolis and the Olympics and now terrible traffic gridlock if you've ever been there. You know the song, New York, New York, where they say if the line, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere? For first century intellectuals, that place was Athens. 
So Paul shows up in Athens and does what Paul often did. He went to the local synagogue and argued and debated. And then he went out into the streets and he talked and argued and debated with anyone else that would listen. Verse 17 says, And every day he went out on the streets and talked with anyone who happened along. He got to know some of the Epicurean and Stoic intellectuals pretty well through these conversations. Some of them dismissed him with sarcasm. What an airhead. But others, listening to him go on about Jesus and the resurrection, were intrigued. That's a new slant on the gods, they said. Tell us more. All right, if we hit pause first, did you know that the Bible has the word airhead in it? You've got to love the message translation. But what's key here is that some of the intellectuals thought Paul was interesting enough and wanted to hear more of him that they invited him to speak at the Oropagus. The Oropagus was a big deal in a city of big deals. It was a rock outcropping located next to the Acropolis in Athens. The god of war, or Ares, was supposed to have been tried for the murder of Poseidon's son on this very spot. So in Greek, Oropagus was translated as the hill of Ares. Ares was a Greek god, but his Roman counterpart was known as Mars. So many of us in the modern Christian world refer to the spot as Mars Hill. The Oropagus was a courthouse. It was a cultural center and a center of intellectual life in Athens, which itself was the center of the world's intellectual life. Debate and ideas and speech and rhetoric lived in this place. I think for opera singers, it's probably like La Scala in Milan or the Vienna Opera House. For punk rockers, it's maybe like CBGB. For comedians, it's maybe like The, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, right? People wanted to speak there. Words and speech and rhetoric and putting words together and cadence and content and delivery all mattered here. It was the place for intellectuals. And Paul was now offered a chance to introduce these people to God using his skill with words. So he steps out onto the big stage and he delivers the only classic oration in the entirety of the scriptures. The only classical oration in the entirety of the scriptures. It's the fullest reported speech in the missionary career of Paul. And there are books and books that are written about what he says on Mars Hill. But I want to focus on a particular theme that runs throughout his talk. We'll pick it up in verse 22, again, using the message translation. So Paul took his stand in the open space at the Oropagus and laid it out for them. It is plain to see that you Athenians take your religion seriously. When I arrived here the other day, I was fascinated with all the shrines that I came across. And then I found one shrine, shrine inscribed to the God nobody knows. Well, I'm here to introduce you to this God so you can worship intelligently and know who you're dealing with. Let's hit pause. Paul is brilliant. The first thing he does is he starts the speech the same way Aristotle recommended that orators start speeches, by buttering up your listener. So Paul compliments the listener, 
telling them that they are very religious and that it's clear that they take their religion very seriously. And then he mentions that, he's, that they're so religious that they actually have a shrine labeled, quote, to the God nobody knows. And then Paul makes an important turn. He says, I'm here to introduce you to this God so you can worship intelligently. In other words, Paul's going to tell them about a God that's always been there, but that they haven't yet been introduced to. In verse 24, we'll continue. The God who made the world and everything in it does not live in custom-made shrines or need the human race to run errands for him as if he couldn't take care of himself. He makes the creatures, the creatures don't make him. Let's pause again. This God, Paul says, does not require a shrine or temple like all the other Greek gods that are out there because this God does not live like humans live. This God isn't served by human needs. This God doesn't need what humans need. This God is a creator, not the created. This God is the creator, not the created. Paul continues, starting from scratch, God made the entire human race and made the earth hospitable with plenty of time and space for living so we could seek after God and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. He's near. One of your poets said it well. We are the God created. Okay, we'll pause here. Paul says we don't need to grope around in the dark for God. That's a great line. God is near. We live and move in God. We cannot get away from God. Here's the gist of it. God is creator. We are the created. When the created search for God, we struggle to find God. Why? It's not because God is elusive, but because the created, or us humans, fail to understand that God is everywhere. God is the source of everything, the hum and brain of the universe. God is not in a particular place. God is not in a particular time. God is everywhere and everything. This is the same idea that Paul's talking about that's hammered out in Psalm 139, where the psalmist proclaims, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? That question is rhetorical because the answer is nowhere. Because God is everywhere. God does not just show up. God's been here the whole time. God is everywhere and everything. Remember, rhetoric and words and the way we put them together matter. Here's a poem I want to read by Rob Bell. It's titled, Walk, Don't Run. Walk, don't run. That's it. Walk, don't run. Slow down, breathe deeply, and open your eyes because there's a whole world right within this one. The bush doesn't suddenly catch on fire. It's been burning the whole time. Moses is simply moving slowly enough to see it. And when he does, he takes off his sandals. Not because the ground has suddenly become holy, but because he's just now becoming aware that the ground has been holy the whole time. Efficiency is not God's highest goal for your life. 
Neither is busyness or how many things you can get done in a day or speed or even success, but walking, which leads to seeing. Now that's something. That's the invitation for every one of us today and every day in every conversation, in every interaction, event, and moment to walk, not run, and in doing so to see a whole world right here within this one. We talk a lot about God showing up in a particular moment or a particular moment being a God moment. Folks, God doesn't show up. God's always here and there and everywhere. And that's one of the points that Paul is trying to make at the Oropagus, that this God is different. This God does not need a shrine. And this God created us and we can't get away from him. God is here and has always been here. And then Paul concludes a speech and notes that the gospel requires a radical life change. Paul notes that something new has happened. He uses the phrase, the unknown has become known. Remember earlier, when he told the Athenians he wanted to introduce them to the God whose shrine they worshiped that was labeled to the God that nobody knows? Well, here he says, the unknown has become known. He brings the speech full circle. It's a brilliant rhetorical device. He knows that the thing that has changed everything is resurrection, which is the first step, the beginning, the foundation of the great setting right. And that idea of resurrection is powerful. But not everyone heard his words. Not everyone appreciated his speech. Not everyone converted on the spot. Rather, a couple of listeners appreciated the speech, while others laughed and walked away making jokes about Paul. A couple of points. The question, the art, the task, the search, the challenge, having listened to Paul talk about the fact that God is here and always has been here, well, the invitation is for you and for me to become more and more the kind of people who are aware of the divine presence and are people that are present to the depths of each and every moment, seeing God in more and more people, more and more places, more and more events each and every day. Richard Rohr summarizes it well. We are already in the presence of God, he says. What's absent is awareness. Another thing that I think is fascinating to support his argument, to support his speech, to support his rhetoric, Paul quotes two philosopher poets, Epimenides and Eridus of Cilicia. Now in this time, poets were the rock stars of their day. They were popular, they could turn a phrase beautifully, they understood the importance of words. Dinners and banquets were routinely entertained by Greek poets reciting the verses of famous poets from the past, poets like Epimenides and Eridus. Well, remember Paul's line about the difference between the creator and the created? Eridus is the one who said, we are the God created that Paul quotes. In their original context, the poet is referring to Zeus, the chief deity of the Greek pantheon. That's interesting, I think. What would inspire Paul, a devout Jewish Christian, to cite pagan poets talking about Zeus to advance 
the Christian message? Why would Paul use words describing a different God to describe this God? I think it's possible to think that these references underscore a point that we talk about a lot here, which is all truth is God's truth. All of us live and move in the presence of the one true God, even if we don't have the words or the concepts of that one true God. Let's say it again. All of us live and move in the presence of the one true God, even if we don't have the words or the concept of that one true God. And there are things that can be holy and sacred that don't at face value come from the Judeo-Christian tradition. Are you with me? The truth is, we can find something holy and we can find something sacred that doesn't necessarily come from the Judeo-Christian tradition, and that thing can still show us God's truth. The thing that at first glance isn't sacred in any traditional Christian sense can actually show us the presence of the one true God who's been here the entire time. I'm going to conclude by going all Hamlet on you tonight. You know, part of Hamlet is based on this idea of a play within a play. In Hamlet, the character Hamlet uses a play that comes to town to prove his uncle Claudius's guilt. Right? They use the play within a play structure because oftentimes there are multiple levels of story within a story, and typically it underlies a deeper message and often shows an interconnection between these two stories. So I'm going to close tonight with a poem from the poet in Q. I think this poem does exactly what Paul does on Mars Hill uses words and rhetoric to introduce us to the fact that God is always here. We just need to slow down. We just need to look. And it uses something that is not at first glance from the Judeo-Christian tradition to show us God and who God is. So the poem is titled 85. 85. I want to fall in love at 85, go on shuffleboard dates, and dance to hip-hop from 95. We'd also listen to the song, Stayin' Alive, but only for the message. Otherwise, we'd keep away from disco. It's depressing. We'd rock matching tracksuits and rope gold chains. We'd look like Run DMC, but in their old age. We'd take aerobics classes and wear bifocal glasses and eat at IHOP and hold hands at Sunday masses. And when it comes to the bedroom, well, nothing much would happen in the bedroom because we're 85. But we would still be down to take a walk or take a drive or sit and talk and have a drink, watch the passers-by and ask each other why and who and how and where and when, and then we'd laugh and cry again about the people we had been, and I would touch her withered skin and comment on how thin it is to keep in something infinite. And she would smile sweet and blush, and tell me that I think too much. She's right, I think too much. It's always been a problem. But then again, that's how I made my green like the goblin. When I was in my 20s, I was eating top ramen, counting up my pennies, saving up to go food shopping. But now I'm 85 and somehow I feel more alive. I turn my hearing aid up and bump Jurassic 5. I read the sports page while she peruses classifieds. We like antique stores, garage sales, and barter buys. And when it comes to the bedroom, 
well, hopefully every once in a while, she lets me knock her boots into the floral patterns of our bedpost, then hold her head close like death isn't chasing us, planning on erasing us and replacing us with better versions of us, reshaping us, remaking us, then recreating us with new identities so we can make new memories. Hush. Little baby, learn to walk and talk and think and lie and feel and fight and love and die and never get the answers why she dips a joint of grass in wheatgrass and we get high. Her hair is silver as the moon in the Miami sky. We still pop pills, but it's not the Molly anymore. Whenever we can't sleep, we listen to the ocean floor. She got a Sounds of the Sea CD for me from the Brookstone store. And ever since I've been snoring like a, like a really good metaphor for snoring. Sorry, I go blank sometimes. What? I'm 85. I'm not complaining. I'm just happy that I'm still alive and happy that I have my better half by my side. Superfly. She doesn't look a day over 75. When I first saw her, I was totally in awe. She was classical, so I was like, yo, mama. And that was all it took, a single look, and I was shook. I fell for her like some loose shingles from our Spanish roof. And I will love her till she loses every last root and has to glue dentures into her gums to chew solid food. Ooh, now that's real love, dude. That's push-come-to-shove love. Not, not when it's convenient love. It's hospital bed love. Feed her ice chips love. Never leave, the, never leave the room, love. Sleeping in the chair, love. Pray up to above, love. Have to pull the plug, love. Miss her in my bones, love. Everything about her, love. Die within a month, love. Can't live without her, love. Love, the only reason we're alive. And none of us should have to wait until we're 85. Please pray with me. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for Paul's words on Mars Hill. Please help us to be aware. Please help us to see that the ground has been holy this whole time. Please help us to see that the bush has been burning the whole time. We thank you for Jesus, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings. Thank you for joining us.